Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. I'm Johnny Kersina, the lead pastor here. We start in on a new series today in First and Second Kings, your second, maybe third favorite books of the Bible. But here we go. We're digging into it. I'm going to, we're here, I have three simple plans for today. One, to set up First and Second Kings in our series in First and Second Kings. Two, to look at a little bit more at the life of Solomon. And then three, just some basic application and takeaway, like what do we get out of this? So just to start off with, First and Second Kings is in the Old Testament of the Bible. And to understand where it fits, whether you've been with us as a church for a number of years or not, it comes after Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. We looked at it this summer, and God creates everything, Adam and Eve fall, and then God calls Abraham to be his chosen person through whom he is gonna build a nation. What's happening in First and Second Kings is the outpouring or the overflow or the years later of what was promised to Abraham. You will be a nation, you will have a land, I will be with you. And so as we look at First and Second Kings, one of the reasons we are doing it is honestly as a church, one of my hopes is that over the course of 20 years or however many years it takes, we will have hit on every book in the Bible. We've looked at Genesis years in the, ago, we looked at Exodus, we've looked at First and Second Samuel. And this 
fits in with some of the stuff that we were looking at earlier this year as we looked at the promises to Abraham and the promise to become a nation, but how they ended up in Egypt after Joseph and the famine. They ended up in Egypt and then eventually slavery. God delivers them out of that. They begin to conquer the land of, uh, of Israel, but during a time of, um, of the judges ruling over Israel, Israel got further and further from the Lord until everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone rejected God, at which point God brings a hero named Ruth, which we looked at in Advent, this foreign widow, and through her a son is born who will be the great-grandfather of King David. David becomes the first great king of Israel, and we end up here in First and Second Kings with that story continuing, that story continuing of the story of David and the sons after him and the kingdom that Israel had become. And so that's why we're looking at First and Second Kings, and if you get one of those cards, if you didn't get it on the way in, you can get it on the way out. It's a reading plan in First and Second Kings. The encouragement is to read along with us in advance of the Sunday. If you missed out, if you didn't start reading in advance, that's okay. And as you're reading along, if you find you miss a day, that's also okay. As I heard somebody say on Twitter, if you have a Bible reading plan, do the same thing that you would do if you are eating, which is this. If you miss a meal, it doesn't mean you stop eating ever again. If you miss a meal, you probably eat the next meal. So if you miss the first week, start eating tomorrow. Open up the Bible, read along with us as we're planning along. So a couple of things just to hold in mind as we go through First and Second Kings. Every book of the Bible has basic themes that the author is trying to get across that orient us to the God of the universe and the life we're meant to live in that. The main theme in First and Second Kings, this historical book of a couple hundred year period in Israel, is faithfulness. Specifically, faithfulness to the covenant, the Torah, the law of God. Most commentators connect First and Second Kings to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was the great covenantal document, kind of like the Constitution of Israel. It was the covenantal document that was delivered to Israel before they entered the Promised Land. And it was to be the way that they were to understand who they are meant to be as a people, the law that they were supposed to live by. And most commentators will connect uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings as historical books living at how Deuteronomy, the covenant, was lived out. The other thing that's interesting that a lot of commentators point out is that it probably shouldn't be called first and second kings. It should be called first and second prophets because the prophets are more prominent than the kings themselves, more important to what's going on. Now, when I say the word prophet, prophet does not mean fortune teller. An Old Testament understanding of prophet is very clear. And it's actually how New Testament prophets were supposed to live themselves out as well. A prophet is a prosecutor of the law. It's a lawyer who, on behalf of God Almighty, is telling the people, you have fallen short. You have broken the law. Come back to the law. They're prosecutors on behalf of God's righteousness, calling Israel to covenant faithfulness, calling the kings to covenant faithfulness again and again. And the prophets are the ones that hold the kings and the nation to account, pointing people back to Yahweh. And so First and Second Kings fits in redemptive history. And one of the, the, the great things and sad things in First and Second Kings is we get to the high point of Israel. We actually get to it this week. The high point of Israel as a nation, the, a rich and wealthy kingdom at peace with all of its neighbors. And then we go into a decline 
as Israel turns away from covenant faithfulness and ultimately is pushed into exile and spends hundreds of years calling out, come, O come, Emmanuel, set us free again, redeem us. Let me pray for us as we enter not just this morning, but, in, but on the next couple of weeks in First and Second Kings. Lord God, as we enter into a book that many of us have never read, but that you revealed in history to reveal yourself. Give us a hunger for your word, but more than that, that, a hunger for you. Ears and eyes to be attentive to how you would teach us, lead us, shape us, and mold us, and to the men and women you have called us to be. Amen. So, First and Second Kings, if you didn't read along, the first two chapters are fascinating and intriguing in the sense of it's like... Um, it's just a classic uh, kingship being ended and everyone fighting for the throne. I mean, it's like one of those bad movies out there about everyone trying to get a hold of the throne. So what ends up happening, it's a very sad start to 1 Kings chapter 1. It talks about David being really old. The great King David is really old, and he's basically literally impotent. He has no power. He's not willing to exercise his responsibility. And so one of his sons named Adonijah, who was maybe the oldest son alive at that time, says, dad has basically given up on life. I will now be king. He throws a party in some uh, distant city, gathers a bunch of the key people to him, and he's like, I'm king. Let's throw a party for a week. At which point, David's prophet named Nathan, the one who confronted him about Bathsheba and killing Uriah, her husband, Nathan comes to him along with Bathsheba separately and says, David, wake up. They kind of smack him around a little bit and say, Adonijah, your son, is claiming to be king. You said Solomon was going to be king after you. He's the one God chose. What are you doing? David, wake up. So David does wake up. He has a plan, and he has Solomon coronated. And Solomon is coronated as king, consecrated as king by going outside of Jerusalem, getting on David's donkey, his mule. He's anointed by the priest. Then he rides in through the kind of Kidron Valley into Jerusalem to the shouts and praises of all the people saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. And then he rides up to the mount of the throne and takes his kingship rightfully. And then in chapter 2, we get this great interaction between David, who's near death, and Solomon, who's now king. And David is, it's, it's almost like the very end of the Godfather movie where Vito Corleone, the, the Godfather, is dying and his son Michael is going to take over and he's given him all these instructions on all the people you need to be aware of when you become the Don. At which point the movie ends just to break it to you and like the Don gets rid of everyone that was going to be trouble to him. Well, that's exactly what Solomon does. Solomon gets the instructions of David. David's like, hey, all these people, you got to be the ones you got to get rid of. Solomon takes over the throne and kills everyone who might be a threat to his kingdom. Here I want to pause and just say, when we're reading Old Testament literature and much of literature in Scripture that is descriptive, not prescriptive, remember that it is descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean? What this is telling us as you read something like First and Second Kings is not how to live, but what happened. Just as you don't read Genesis 3 and say, um, Adam and Eve ate the fruit they weren't supposed to, to do, therefore I can do that. God is saying to do that. No, it's descriptive of what they did, but it's not prescriptive of how you are supposed to live. 
Some things will describe some things prescribe how you are, uh, ought to live. And so God is not saying these are good things, but what we do see in the beauty of Old Testament literature like this is God, the God of the Bible, acts in history. He works in human history, in human lives, even as they are filled with messiness and sinfulness and evil. God's sovereign grace is at work. And we see that most beautifully even in the choosing of Solomon to be king. Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the woman who David had sinfully stolen, killed her husband, and it's her son, Solomon, who gets to be king. Solomon takes over the throne, and as he's king over Israel, he becomes incredibly successful, the most successful king in all of Israel. His wealth surpassed any other king in Israel. You can read this in chapter 4 and in chapter 9. And then he establishes the reign of his kingdom and of Israel's far greater than David ever did. The land spread from the Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean. The map was as vast as it ever was for Israel, and there was peace, peace on every side. We read a summary of what Solomon did pretty quickly in verse 24 of chapter 4. It says, for Solomon, he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. That word peace is key. That word peace is shalom, and the, the idea is they finally got to a Sabbath rest. It was the promise given to Abraham. One day you will be in a land and you will be at peace. You will be at rest. When they were coming out of the Exodus, Israel just longed to be in their land and at peace, at rest. For centuries they'd been looking forward to it, and finally under Solomon they have peace. They have rest, which for us looks forward to eternity. Solomon is rightfully named Solomon, king of peace, shalom. And then in chapters 5 through 8, the high point of Solomon's reign is that he builds the temple. The temple for God finally is being built in Israel. It's this amazing construction project. International relations are involved. He oversees the whole thing. The, the, then they consecrate the temple. He prays these prayers. The Lord Almighty in, in fog and cloud inhabits the temple. And Israel knows God Almighty is with us the high point. It, he's finally able to do what David, his father, wanted to do, which is build a temple for Yahweh. Solomon is the great king. But all of these things are not actually his greatest attribute, of course. Solomon's greatest attribute is his wisdom. It's the very thing he prays for when he has that vision that was just read for us. He has a vision of Yahweh. God says, hey, ask whatever you want. Like, I'm the genie, do what you want. Now, God doesn't actually work that way, but for Solomon, he did. Descriptive, not prescriptive. And Solomon says, you are a faithful God. I have to oversee this entire nation, your people. I need understanding and discernment to know what is right and good and true. He asks for wisdom. And God says, you've chosen rightly. You've chosen well. Because you did not ask for long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you wisdom and give you those other things as well. Solomon is considered the wisest and greatest of the kings. There's that story that follows afterwards about the two prostitutes who come in fighting over whose baby is the baby that's alive. And Solomon says, well, just bring out a sword. Let's cut it in half. And the one woman's like, don't cut the baby in half. Just give it to her. 
The other woman's like, that's right, let's cut the baby in half. Then neither of us get a baby. Solomon, of course, knows which one is the true mother. His wisdom was known the world around. We read in chapter 4, verses 29 to 34, a description of Solomon's wisdom that was known this way. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind, like all the sand of the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Solomon is literally the wisest man alive by these descriptions. And we know as well that Solomon was wise in the, the things he wrote. He's, he's recorded as the one who wrote the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Proverbs is written by Solomon, and so is Ecclesiastes. So here he is, Solomon, who's actually known if you read First and Second Kings, if you read Chronicles and some of the other things he wrote, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He was an economist. He was a biologist. He was involved and studied in architecture. He was a poet. He knew politics and international relations. He was a philosopher. He was absolutely brilliant. And he lived the fullest of full lives. Not only was he brilliant and wise and learned and educated, but he had greater experiences than anyone could possibly have had. He had all the wealth in the world, so whatever he wanted to do, he could do. He ate all the best foods, drank all the best wine. He had construction projects everywhere. He had all the romance or sex you could possibly want and more. And yet, with all of that, he has a conclusion at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. He says, I have seen everything. I've seen it all. I've done it all. If you can think it, I've done it. I've tasted it. I've been there. It's all meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You know, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, and even the wisdom that Solomon originally praised for is not merely intelligence or being really educated and learned, or even having a lot of experience and therefore being older and wiser. Although I will say, in general, the grayer the hair, the wiser. Experiences do matter because they educate and train us. But rather, wisdom, biblically, is the ability to discern right from wrong, good from bad, true from false. Godly wisdom, true wisdom, is what matters and how we are supposed to live. What matters and how we're supposed to live. At the root of true wisdom is knowing God. And it's ultimately discerning God's ways, God's priorities, God's purposes. And you know what? Multiple degrees are not needed. You know what is? a good heart. Wisdom is needed in life, but a good heart is needed more. And if we compare the two great kings of of Israel, David and Solomon, and then we ask the question, which one is the goat, greatest of all time, right? The greatest of all time argument is one that we all have, LeBron or Jordan, it's obviously Jordan. We have these arguments about like, what's the best movie of all time? I told you it's The Godfather. Who's the best author? It's Dostoevsky. What's the greatest band of all time? It's U2. We could go on, you know, like, these things are obvious, they debate, but there's clear answers to these things. 
When it came to David and Solomon, who's the greatest of all time? Well, think about it. Solomon. Solomon has expanded the kingdom of Israel greater than any king before or after him. He is the wealthiest king in all of Israel and possibly in the world at that point. He builds the temple and Israel is at rest and he is the freaking wisest man in the entire world. Boom. Every culture has kings. Solomon's greatest of all times. Whatever we consider the greatest of all time in our culture, in our own lives, the kind of things we look to, they will shape our values and as a result, our evaluation of ourselves. Our goats define how we value and evaluate ourselves. And therefore, whether we have pride because I kind of follow in those footsteps or shame because I'm just a failure, I don't live up to what I think is important. It's how we parent often. Say, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how your life is supposed to look. See these goats? It's even how kids relate to each other, the standards they hold to each other, the reason they judge each other. You're not pretty enough, smart enough, fast enough, cool enough. And yet, the whole time, God is operating on a whole other value system. Do you know what wisdom? Wisdom is amazing. Wisdom is great. Most of us need wisdom. In fact, we all need wisdom. But great wisdom has an Achilles heel. The Achilles of wisdom is self-reliance. You begin to trust your intuition, your insights, the choices you've made in life. You begin to defend them. You're successful. You're wise. Your things are great. Your life doesn't look like crap like those other people. You're pretty amazing. You're capable. And you put yourself on the throne. Solomon seems to have done this as his life concludes. David or Solomon, who is the goat? You know, what's interesting is to think about um, who is the hoped-for Messiah years later? Son of David or son of Solomon? How do we define David? What is the defining characteristic of David? If Solomon is wise, do you know what David's is? When he's chosen king, God says it to the prophet Samuel who's going to choose him. He says, David is a man after my own heart. In Acts, one of the apostles publicly preaching says, David, David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon built the temple, expanded the empire, amassed great riches beyond any in Israel, and was the wisest man alive. David (laughs) rapes Bathsheba, murders her husband, and tries to cover it up. David is not allowed to build the temple because he had killed, murdered too many people. And yet God's promise for a Messiah is to him, to David, not to Solomon. The promise of an eternal throne is to David, not to Solomon. David is remembered centuries later as the one in whom all of Israel's hopes are placed. He is the one they want to return to the throne. When Israel's in exile, all the prophets are saying, we want the son of David to come, not a second Solomon. Well, they do want a second Solomon, 
They just want a true Solomon, a true king of peace, a son of David. Jesus is called not son of Solomon, but son of David. Why? Because David is a man after God's own heart. David failed, failed miserably. He sinned, evil. But eventually when confronted, he repented. Publicly, earnestly. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a clean... He confesses publicly. He writes it down in a psalm and publishes it. says, this is my confession. David was willing to repent. That's a true heart after God. David was ultimately not a man known for his wisdom, but for his worship. He wrote tons of psalms. He played songs to calm people who were spiritually messed up. And his desire was to be with the Lord. He danced in front of all of Israel in his underwear because he was worshiping God so boldly. In Psalm 27, he says, one thing, one thing do I want in this world. One thing have I desired to dwell with you, to be in your temple, to worship you, to be with you, God. To have a heart after God's own heart, for us to be men and women after God's own heart, is to say that my will is aligned with God's, because a heart is ultimately your will. It's your core desire. So we say heart all the time in Christianity and the Bible, and we don't just mean the beating thing, and we don't just mean your emotions. It's incorporated into it, your emotions, your mental state, but it's really the core of your decision-making. It's your will. It's your desires and wants and loves, your core commitments and the basis on which your life is built. That is your heart. What do you most want? What do you most love? David was not perfect, He was very sinful and flawed, but he most wanted God and kept being brought back to that. Almost like Paul in Romans 7 who says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. Gosh, I just want to follow you, God, but I keep falling apart. A heart after God's is a will aligned to God's purposes, to desire and want what God does. You know, if you have a good friend that you've been friends with for years, you begin to know what they love and want, and want it for them. So I have friends that, like, I know if they're coming over, I want to have certain drinks in my house because that's what they like. And I want them to be happy when they come to my house. Not only that, but when you uh, become, you know, years later, if you really love a friend or love, like, a spouse or a child, what you'll find is your loves and wants get shaped to theirs. You hated zombie movies, now for some reason you love them? You must be really good friends. But you do. You begin to love the things your spouse loves, a close friend loves, a a child loves. You begin to love them because you love the person and you know them, and your loves and desires are shaped by them. Our heart's loves are cultivated by the rhythms and habits that shape our time, our priorities, our commitments. And they begin to form and reform our hearts, loves, and wants. Our hearts are relational. They're conformed to those whom we give our heart to. 
Our hearts are relational, and they will be conformed to those we give our heart to. So who or what are you giving your heart to? You know, all the future kings in 2 Kings and 1 Kings are judged by their heart for God or not. And David is the standard. Four of your favorite kings, Jeroboam, Abijam, Asa, and Jehu. Jeroboam says, you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart. About Abijam, it says his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh as the heart of David was. Asa, the king, the heart of Asa was wholly true to Yahweh. And Jehu, you did all that was in my heart regarding Ahab, but you did not walk in the law with me with all of your heart. That's what matters, your heart. And that was actually what mattered in Solomon's life, even if he wasn't sure of it. At the beginning of Solomon's reign, God says to him in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, if your sons, chapter 2, verse 4, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, Torah faithfulness, with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Later, after he builds the temple, he calls Israel to heart faithfulness to God, and then God says, and I call you to heart faithfulness, Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, this is in chapter 9, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. If your heart is aligned to me, you will be the one through whom I will continue everything forever. Solomon. But then if you keep reading, you get to the epilogue on Solomon's life. And as I read it this week, I was deeply saddened, forgetting this part from years ago, I guess. It says this in chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. It says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And here's why. Because from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Two takeaways to end. At least these are two takeaways from me. You can decide if they are for you or not, maybe for your 2023. The first is this. Seek to cultivate a heart for God. Pretty simple. You know, for years when people asked me what they could be praying for me for, if it wasn't just something immediate like, oh, I've got this happening or this surgery for a friend or something, like, I, I would tell people, I need wisdom. I need wisdom as a parent. Parenting is hard. Relationships are hard. Extended family relationships are hard. We need wisdom for relationships. I need wisdom. I need wisdom for life, for life choices, for what to do with money, with resources, with all these things, right? 
And I needed wisdom for pastoring. I don't have the wisdom to pastor a church well. And I've thought that for years. I've just asked people, please pray for me to have wisdom, wisdom to lead this church well, to pastor well. But after reading about Solomon this week, I was very disheartened and saddened to think, gosh, he had all this wisdom, and in the end, he failed. So instead, maybe what I should be asking for is to become the man after God's own heart. Pray for that. God, make me a woman after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. For my heart to be humble and contrite and willing to confess, open, desiring God more than anything else. If I want discernment, I think the story of Solomon and of David would be this, discernment is enabled by your devotion. Cultivate that relationship with God, and wisdom and discernment will follow. Wisdom is needed, but a heart for God is needed more. A heart for God is greater than wealth or success or fame or power or romance or First, a heart for God. And the second is this, also from the story of Solomon and David. Finish well. Finish well. David in chapter 1 is abdicating his responsibility to his family, his nation, his calling. And you know what? He's probably like, he's an old man, right? Like, I don't know how old he is, 80, 110, who knows, right? He, he'd accomplished so much already. Can he just enjoy doing whatever he wants to do? or doing nothing at all. Can't you do that once you've gotten to a certain point? But it's actually sad because he's abdicating his responsibility and calling. He's not finishing well. And Solomon, Solomon slides towards other loves in the end of his life. He is successful, wealthy, brilliant, famous. But in the end, he turns away from God. Don't let that be the sad epilogue on your story. And so now I'm talking to everyone who is more like, if, if you can get a free, um, what's the, the shingle shot, you know, you and older. If you don't know what that is, you can ignore it for now. <laughs> Entering those stages of life that are more gray-haired or fewer than less your life is not about you and your happiness. It never was. It never is. Nor is it about getting to a certain place where you're like, well, I've earned this. I sort of deserve this. In this stage of life, this is what everyone does. It is about, always has been about, and always will be about God. Knowing him, loving him, following him to your end. You want a goat? Let me tell you about a goat. Rosa Barnes. Rosa Barnes was somewhere between 75 and 105 when I met her 20 plus years ago. You know what she was? She was a widow living in a retirement community who loved Jesus. Man, did she love Jesus. She went to Bible study as often as she could. She read the Bible on her own, had a devotional life, was in small groups, led small groups. She even had a guitar and would be participating in the worship team at her church. She was generous. 
She supported missionaries and seminary students and anybody else she possibly could. She was an evangelist going around her retirement community making sure people knew Jesus and were prayed for. She did not run a business or a kingdom. She was not a great influencer, didn't have any followers. Oh, and she ended well. End like that woman. Find the right goats in your life. Like Paul, who at the end of his life, before he's about to be executed, says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You are not over until God says you're over. Finish well. Let's pray. Give us, O Lord, a steadfast heart which no unworthy thought can drag down. Give us, O Lord, an unconquered heart which no tribulation can wear out. Give us, O Lord, an upright heart which no unworthy purpose can tempt aside. Bestow on us wisdom and understanding to know you, the diligence to seek you, the wisdom to find you, and the faithfulness to embrace you to the very end. Amen. Just invite you to continue uh, prayerfully in your heart um, or joining in um, in this reflection song.